going to start um, a brand new series that um, we're going to go over, which is Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels. Last week, we finished a uh, 67-week study in the book of Hebrews. And now we're going to start a brand new series that I'm very excited about. I, I, I think I'm going to learn a lot just studying through this. So I'm so looking forward to uh, for me to learn even, just digging into God's word and, and see what it says and how the gospel presents Jesus to us. Does anybody know what does the word synoptic, synoptic gospel mean, or have you ever heard it before? So, Right, so the word synoptic means really look together or, or something that you can see from the exact same view. In Christianity, in the Bible, the word synoptic gospel is a reference to the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three gospels only, not the gospel of John. And the reason is, if you read these four gospels and look at all of them from like a panoramic view, you're gonna see that there are extreme similarities between uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John is kind of like different. Many of his miracles, many of his teachings are not even recorded in any of the three uh, first gospels, but the first three gospels are pretty much, very much in tune. As a matter of fact, if you flip with me, there is uh, an Excel paper that I put in your back notes here. Uh, you can just take a quick glance at it that tells you the, like, the chronological events through the life of Christ in the four Gospels. Um, and if you can look at the last four columns that present the last four Gospels, it's really easy, simple to tell that when you look at John, most of the reference that we have in John are in parallel in the other three gospel, and the opposite is also true. Most of the references where you see almost all the three gospels has it are not present in John. You guys, just simple observation. You guys are with me? So that's why they call the first three gospels the synoptic gospels, um, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, John presented Jesus as the Son of God insane focus in the Gospel of John on the divinity of Christ. And that's why um, a lot of people who even say that Jesus is not God use the synoptic gospel and say, hey, look, you barely find any evidence that Jesus is God in the synoptic gospels, all the evidence in John. Maybe John made it up, you know? I mean, John and Paul got together and made it up because no other person talks about the divinity of Christ. But we're going to discuss all of that as we go through the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, just a couple of quick things here, um, just some stats. Nearly 90% of Mark, um, they say that Mark is the first book that is written, uh, and, then, and then Matthew and Luke after that, and John is the last Gospel that was written. So a lot of people argue that when Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels, they actually referenced Mark. Like Mark, there were textbook, and they also go back to it and, and quote from it. It's a theory, um, you know, it's probably true, but you know, I'm not worried about that when we study. We're just gonna approach it. This is God's word. What is the word of God teaching us, right? Uh, so nearly 90% of Mark content is actually found in Matthew. About 50% of Mark appear in Luke. So 90% of Mark in Matthew, 50% of Mark appears in Luke. All the parables of Jesus are found in the Synoptic Gospel and not a single parable in John. You guys see the trend here that there are just, John is just different. There are differences though between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're not just identical. Um, 
Obviously, Mark is the shortest one. Uh, Matthew wrote her gospel to a Jewish audience. He's, he's writing to the Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why Matthew is the most who quoted the Old Testament. And you see the phrase, it is written as it is written as it is written, because he's writing to the Jewish people to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Mark, on the other hand, he wrote he, he's writing to a, a secular Gentile audience, specifically the Romans. He's presenting Christ mainly as the servant of God. That's why the most common single word in Mark is the word immediately. You see, Jesus preached, preached at the mountain immediately. He jumped in the boat. Immediately he got off the boat. Immediately he did this. Immediately he did that. Because throughout Mark, his goal is to present Christ as the servant of God. Luke also wrote to Gentiles, but he didn't just write to, um, to Romans. He wrote to the broader um, Gentile audience of that time. He presented Jesus as the Son of Man or as the Savior of humanity. So that's why you see um, a lot of, like Luke focused a lot on how Jesus dealt with the Gentiles and the Samaritans because that's his audience that he's trying to target. Luke 10 to 20, there's a lot of passages in that um, gospel that is extremely unique to Luke that we cannot find any other place in the synoptic or in John. You guys are good with me so far? All right, now, let's, what is the times of Jesus? Remember that the last book that was written in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and then there was 400 years till Mark wrote his first gospel. And during these 400 years, so much happened economically, socially, uh, that the Greek rose and fell. The Romans rose at that time, and they haven't fallen yet. They fell at 70 AD after Christ. So there is a lot of changes. I'm not going to give you a history lesson today, but under our, again, in our website, under resources, there is an article called Second Temple Period and the New Testament Background. I highly encourage you to go and spend some time to read it. It's very dry and boring, but if you get through it, it's going to give you a lot of information to understand the background of the New Testament. Just know this, that this is important for us. During the time of Jesus, they estimate there were about 6 million Jews in the world, okay? One million of their Jews were actually living in Palestine, in, in Israel. And you have five million who are scattered all over the world. Most of them, most of them spoke Greek. That's why the New Testament was written in Greek. A lot of them were in Alexandria, Egypt. A lot of them were in Persia. So the Septuagint, what is the Septuagint? The Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, because of the need for the Jewish people to know the scripture, even before Jesus was born, 70 Jewish scholars got together in Alexandria, Virginia. Remember, this is before Jesus was born. And they translated that the Hebrew text, the Old Testament Bible, into Greek, which we have now in our hand and called the Septuagint. That Greek translation of the Old Testament, not actually the Hebrew Bible, was the most common Bible of that time. Chances are, this is the Bible that Matthew, Mark, and Luke used when they were referenced the Old Testament. We're going to see evidence of that today. 
So you guys are with me? We have seen the author of Hebrews when we went through Hebrews. He mainly quoted the Septuagint, not the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. So just keep that in mind because that will help us a lot. That's mainly the main point as we move forward in um, studying how Matthew, Mark, and Luke presented Christ to us. How are we going to approach this? Obviously, these are... Um, Three large chapters, three large books, so we don't know. I'm, I'm not interested personally in going verse by verse or passage by passage. The reason why I don't want to do it this way is by the time we actually get done through this, I might be old and Mike, I might have his own kids, right? It's just going to be too long. What I want to do is, and that's the title of our message, to, like our series, is Jesus of the Synoptic Gospel. I want to focus on who Jesus is, how Matthew, Mark, and Luke presented Jesus to us. What did Jesus say about himself? How, what kind of claims he made about himself? Even when we study his teaching, I, I'm not interested in how we can per se apply that teaching into our lives, which is important. But I'm more interested in what did Jesus teach about himself? What, who he is according to his teaching, according to his miracles, according to his parables, everything that he told us. Why, why I'm saying that? Paul said, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that we preach Christ and him crucified. I think to myself, I think to myself that if, if that's good enough for Paul, it ought to be good enough for me. So what I want to do generally, even if you guys have been with me for the last few years, you see that the focus of anything I try to preach is Jesus and him crucified, either who Jesus is or his perfect salvation that he has done for us when he died as our substitute on the cross. Amen? Amen. Not that the rest of the passages in the Bible are not important. It's extremely important. But I'm 41 years old. I'm not sure. I don't think I'm going to have the time in my life to go through every single verse in the scripture. So I'd rather just to focus on these two things, Jesus and him crucified. And that's what we're going to do uh, as we try to glean through the first three Gospels, pick up the teaching about Jesus and his salvation, who Jesus is as a person, and what kind of salvation he has done for us. Having said that, this is not going to be perfect. I might probably miss some passages that fit perfectly in our category. And we might end up studying passages, and after I spend the whole week studying, I figure out this is, doesn't fit perfectly. We're going to go through it anyway. You guys with me? So this is going to be more of a trend, not like a hardcore, solid facts, how we're going to do it. But this is the overall trend of what we're going to start to do today. Now, what I would like to do is we're not going to go gospel by gospel by gospel. I want to compare all the three gospels together and really construct the life of Jesus chronologically from these three gospels. So if you flip back with me to that Excel page uh, that you might have in your um, notes, you can see that there are so much pretty much Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, much parallelism between them. So we're going to go chronologically through the life of Christ from these three gospels. Luke was particularly interested in writing historically accurate story of Jesus. So chronologically, Luke might be the most accurate one. Having said that, we're just going to go through the, 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 histori the historicity of Christ as presented here. I mean, this is pretty much standard uh, chronological presentation if you look at any um, 
any presentation online, this is pretty standard. And then if the passage is present in all three Gospels, then we're going to study it in all three Gospels. We're going to try to reconcile the differences. We're going to try to understand why, for example, Mark will tell, tell us it's one blind man, but Matthew will tell us there were two blind men, for example, stuff like that. We're going to try to reconcile all of that as we go. So. Long story short, we're not going to go one book at a time. We're going to go through all three books at a time. And we're going to pick the exact same passages, parallelism, and we're going to study all of them. And I believe, let's, let's put it this way, I am looking forward to this. Because I feel that I will learn a lot uh, just by the time we finish this. Amen? Amen. Well, one amen. That's good. Well, I hope you enjoy it because I'm doing it anyways. <laughs> All right. With that in mind, today our first passage actually going to be from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verse 14 to verse 21. Why we're starting here? Because my thinking, again, is I want to start where Jesus started, and we might end up when Jesus ended his teaching and his miracles and his parables. So we might not go through the events of the cross and study it. I'm not going to focus on the baptism of Jesus because for me, the baptism of Jesus, that's stuff that happened to him. Obviously, all these passages are important. I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm just trying to help you understand that there is a reason to the madness here. I'm just trying to figure out who Jesus is, how he presented himself, what we learn from his own miracles and teaching and parables about him. So that's, again, the goal that I am trying to accomplish through studying this. With that in mind, we're going to start from Luke 4, 14 to 21. This is actually Jesus' first sermon. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. When you read, when you read your Bible, you open it. You first, the first gospel is Matthew. The first sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. You think, oh, this is the first sermon Jesus preached. It's not. The first sermon Jesus preached is right here in Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to verse 21. We'll read it together, or I read it for us. Jesus returned to Galilee. This is the NIV. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Verse 15, he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, that's where he was born, where he was brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner, a recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the, the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearings. Amen? Amen. That must be the, mo the shortest sermon in the history of humanity. Amen? Yet it's the most powerful one. Okay? Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is Jesus' inaugural sermon. We read in verse uh, 14 and 15 that he has been used to going to the synagogue and teach and preach every Saturday. But this is the first sermon that is actually documented, that we wrote down. What did Jesus read and what did he say? 
Now, verse uh, 14, where we start, it says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He returned from his temptation. He just has been tempted by Satan, and now he finished and passed that test, and now it says this, he returned to Galilee, how? And the power of the Spirit. And throughout Luke, we see how Jesus was Luke presenting him to us as a man anointed by God over and over. Right here in, in Luke 14, 14, it says that he went back, he came back in the power of the Spirit. If you go actually to chapter 3, verse 22, right before this, it says this, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. That's during Jesus' baptism. We see the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 1, right before this passage, it says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan after he was baptized, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted. So think about this. He's in baptism. He's being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, now that he finished the baptism, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted. After he was tempted in the wilderness, he returned, how? In the power of the Holy Spirit so that he can go to God's. In verse 418, where we're going to study this passage, what does it say? The Spirit of the Lord God is what? Upon me. He has anointed me. In, in Luke 10, 21, at that time, the scripture says, Jesus, full of joy and filled with what? The Holy Spirit, or the joy through the Holy Spirit, says, I praise you, God. It was Luke who told us in the book of Acts, chapter 10, verse 18, how God did what? Anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about to do good and heal all those who were oppressed by the devil. Amen? Over and over and over again, we see that Jesus was anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to minister and perform miracles, do you guys think that we might have a slight need for the Holy Spirit ourselves? Yes. Amen? If Jesus was filled so much with the Holy Spirit, he didn't start his ministry until he was filled with the Holy Spirit. We ought to do the exact same thing. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. The Holy Spirit is not an option. Maybe our programs can be an option. Coffee shops can be an option. Uh, kids programming can be an option. But the Holy Spirit is not an option. Amen? Amen. Now, let me just uh, pause here and tell you a, a quick note. <clears throat> Jesus did a lot of miracles, right? Supernatural crazy miracles. Think about, for example, when he was sleeping in the, in the boat and the disciples came to him freaking out and say, wake up, don't you care? You know, we're in a storm. Jesus stands up and commands the sea and say, what? Peace, be still. And then the sea, the raging sea, stop raging, right? Now, just a word of um, help to us here. If you end up witnessing to a Jehovah Witness or somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus is God, the miracles of Jesus is not a conclusive proof that he is God. You guys are with me? 
It's conclusive for you and me if you already believe it. If you believe that Jesus is God, which we do, and I can say that the miracles are a proof of his divinity, but if you did not grow up believing that Jesus is God, right? This is what you have been taught all your life. You can look at the miracles of Jesus and say, yeah, Jesus did miracles, but he did it like any other prophet who, or man of God who was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do miracles. And we have tons of scripture actually to back up that point of view. You guys are with me? You guys are with me? So this is not a strong conclusive argument. There are so many are strong arguments to believe from the, to, to show from the scripture that Jesus is divine. He is equal to the Father, but this is not one of them. You guys are with me? So don't go around and give people weak argument and then blame their hardness of hearts for not buying your weak argument. You guys are with me? You need to present a solid, good biblical argument for what we believe. From their perspective, if they grow up not, know, not believing Jesus is God, that might not be a conclusive argument. And I can say it. You say, hey, how can Jesus not be God if he just can say to the raging sea, stand, be still. And it obeys him. That's a proof that he's God. Well, they can answer you back and say, well, Joshua commanded the son and say, stand, be still. And they stood. Do we believe that Joshua is God? We don't, do we? No. From their perspective, you guys are with me. I'm not saying that Jesus' miracle is not a proof of his divinity. What I'm saying is from their perspective, if they cannot see it, our argument will be weak. Amen? So keep that in mind, let's move on. It says here in verse 15 that Jesus entered into the synagogue. They say that the synagogues were the cradle of the church. Uh, during that time of Jesus, every Saturday, synagogues were a place where people go to study and read the scripture. And uh, not just read and study the scripture, it has a social effect as well. Think of the synagogues of that time as a community center where everybody goes there for, on the weekend on, on Saturday. Studying the scripture was essentially essential part of that gathering. And at that time, anybody, as we can see here, group of people get together and anybody can stand up and talk. You don't have to go to the seminary, you don't have to do anything, and people can think about what you're saying and they listen to you and they can disagree or agree with what you have to say. You guys are with me? That was the culture of that time, that's how they did church. So Jesus went there, he stood up and was handed the book of Isaiah and he read that passage that we just read here from verse 18 to verse um, 19. Now, before we move on to that, let's look at verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, what? As was his custom. Now, Jesus is 30 years old, and this is his custom growing up, going to the synagogues every single Saturday to listen to what people have to say about the scripture. Think about that. The son of God, the son of God thought that going to church every week is so important. You guys are with me? I, I can't imagine Jesus going there and he listened to somebody preaching and he knows that what this guy is saying is total bluff, right? <laughs> like this is not even true. The guys, for example, might be reading this passage from Isaiah and saying, hey, this passage is telling us about the prophet Isaiah and how God through his message through Isaiah will deliver the oppressed. And Jesus sitting down saying, no, it ain't about the prophet Isaiah. And it ain't about the anointing of God on Isaiah. It's about me, right? 
But the following Saturday, Jesus still goes back to the synagogue to listen. You guys are with me? This is mind-blowing, especially for me too, because before I start pastoring here, I'll be like not very happy with a lot of churches. My point is the gathering of the saints are extremely important, right? It might not be perfect, but if the Son of God thought it's important to be consistent with it, we ought to be consistent with that as well. Amen? As it was his custom. And then Jesus, again, he's handed that scroll. He starts reading, and he read that passage that we read here in, in Luke 4, 18 to 20 or 19. That passage that Luke documented for us is actually a hybrid quote from two different passages in the book of Isaiah. So the passage of Luke is two passages mixed together from the book of Isaiah. The first passage is Isaiah 61, 1 to 2. It reads this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the broken hearts, to proclaim freedom to the captive, to, re to release from darkness those who are prisoners, to proclaim the year of the, the Lord's favor and uh, the day of vengeance of our God. And the passage continue uh, from there in the book of Isaiah. If we stop here, there's a couple of major differences between how Luke quoted that passage from Isaiah 61. Number one, we see that he totally took out that phrase, he has sent me to bind the broken hearts. That's not in Luke's quote. Why? Because this phrase is not in the Septuagint. It's in the Hebrew text, but the Septuagint doesn't have that phrase. And Luke relied on the Septuagint. That's why he doesn't have this phrase in his quote in, uh, in Luke chapter 4. That's number one. Number two, second major uh, difference is that in the passage of Luke, we see that Luke, I mean Jesus, inserted a phrase not from Isaiah 61, which is the very end of verse 18. If you turn back with me to the passage, we'll look through it together. Luke 18 and 19, Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me before he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me, again, he missed that one phrase here because he followed the Septuagint. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner and recovery of sight to the blind. So far, following Isaiah 61 with the exception of that phrase. But then that part right here, and to set the oppressed free, that is not from Isaiah 61. That's actually a quote from Isaiah 58 verse 6. It reads this, is not this is the kind of fasting I'm choosing to loosen the chain of the injustice and unite the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free. That's the, the quote here and break every yoke. Apparently what happened is while Jesus was reading from Isaiah 61, he probably inserted from memory that verse from Isaiah 58 verse 6, which is to set the captives free. Amen? And that's so far two major differences difference. We're going to talk about it later. But this is the two major differences how Luke quoted Isaiah, the hybrid passage in Isaiah 61 and 68. Now, in Luke's passage, Jesus claimed that there is five things that he was anointed to do. Amen? Number one, he was anointed to do what? Preach, proclaim, 
the good news to the poor. Number two, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Number three, recovery of sight to the blind. Number four, to set the oppressed free. And number five, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Let's go through these five tasks that Jesus is able and capable of doing. Number one, to proclaim the good news to the Okay, two people are listening. Good. To proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the Greek word poor here, definitely, no question about it, has the idea of those who are financially poor, materialistically poor. There is no question about the meaning of that Greek word. However, for me, at least, there's a lot of debate. What does that mean? But for me, I take that word poor, obviously, again, financially poor, but I think personally that Jesus is referring to those who are spiritually poor, not just financially poor, right? Why? Why do I think that? Because the text itself tells us if, if Jesus was financially poor, Jesus should have said, the spirit of the Lord God has anointed me to provide for the poor. If it says provide for the poor, I say, oh, that's definitely financially poor. There's no question about it, right? But no, those poor, the answer that they need is not financial material. It's more that they might hear some good news, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of the poor is those who are hopeless. Somebody who's desperate, have no way out, and they're stuck, and they cannot go anywhere and they lost every possible hope, all of a the sudden, they're hearing some good news. That is the point that Jesus is trying to convey to us. You guys are with me? Now, having said that, you cannot separate, you cannot separate being financially poor sometimes from being spiritually poor. What I'm trying to say is this. Imagine that the doctor tells you that you have cancer. That's very bad news, right? Now, if you have cancer and you can afford your medication, there's some hope. You know, I can go get that medicine, I can go take it, and maybe God will use that medicine to heal me, right? But now imagine the doctor tells you you have cancer and you don't have money to, to afford your medicine. You can't even afford it. How much more hopeless you will be, right? Because the one thing that you were looking for, your medicine, you cannot even get. So being financially poor in that sense affects you as a whole, as a person. Everything becomes more hopeless because you don't have any resources. You guys are with me? But with that in mind, again, the point here is Jesus is talking about those who are not just financially poor, but spiritually poor. Where do we get that from? How do we know this is correct? So Jesus is quoting that in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 5, one of the first converts that heard the good news of Jesus and decided to follow him was actually a tax collector named Levi whom the Lord changed his heart and became Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew to us and Matthew Levi was not financially poor right he was a very rich man yet he heard the good news and he obeyed it and to him Jesus proclaimed good news you guys are with me so right immediately after that context you see a rich man getting saved but if you continue Luke 6 20 we get that's that's the chapter after that Jesus is saying this looking at his disciple he said blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God how many here would say that Jesus is not saying that rich men can never enter into heaven? He's not talking about you who are financially poor 
that you are the only one who's going to enter into heaven. You guys are with me? Jesus is talking about those who are spiritually poor, that now they have the kingdom of heaven. Those who are desperate, hopeless, and helpless, those are the ones who can have the kingdom of heaven. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is what Paul said. For you know Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. How many of you, of you guys here would say that when Paul said that through his poverty you might become rich, Paul did not mean that you will become millionaires and billionaires. This is not what he's talking about here, right? He's talking about you being rich in your spiritual relationship with God. We're broken, we're sinful, we're sinners, we're far apart from God, we're miserable, but because of Jesus humbling himself, putting aside all his glories, he comes down to us, and because of how he humbled himself, we have been lifted up. You guys are with me? Now, don't take me wrong. I, uh, being rich is not a bad thing, right? It's, it's a good thing. If a couple of you guys are millionaires, I'll be extremely happy. You guys, you guys are with me? But the goal, of be, if your goal is to be rich, is to be a millionaire, and that's the end of it, we might have a problem. You guys are with me? But if you want to have a lot of resources so you can bless God's work, go for it. You can be, I want you to be the richest person in the world so you can give as much resources to God's, word, God's work as much as possible. You guys are with me? Amen? But the idea that Jesus died on the cross, you can have the fanciest of houses and the fanciest of cars, this is wickedness. Amen? This is not in the scripture. God want to bless you so you can be a blessing. Amen? Now, 2 Corinthians 9, um, 2 Corinthians 6, 10. Again, Paul is talking about himself and the ministers, and he said, We sorrowful, yet we are rejoicing. Poor, yet we make many rich. Again, the idea here is, Paul is not saying, we're taking our millions and give it to other people. That's why we're becoming poor and they're becoming rich. You guys are with me? He's saying, even though we might be materialistically poor, yet we are able to enrich people through the relationship with Christ. Having nothing, yet we are possessing everything. Amen? Mm -hmm. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to those who are poor helpless and hopeless that have no way out yet it is specifically for this kind of people that Jesus has come and died on the cross so he can bring good news to those who are desperate amen, amen. but not only that to proclaim freedom to the prisoners the word prisoners that Jesus used here, the Greek word literally taken from the Septuagint from the Old Testament in connection when, when Israel is being taken to the exile and they are becoming prisoners of, of a foreign country, particularly because they have sinned against God and because of their sin, they now have gone into captivity. So the word prisoners here is really linked more of being a, a captive because of the consequences of sin. You guys are with me? This is even emphasized by the word freedom or release that Jesus has used here in, in Luke word is used elsewhere in the book of Luke to, trans, to be translated as forgiveness of sin, parallel to the word forgiveness. For example, there's many, but for example, Luke 3, 3, it says this, Jesus went into all the country around the Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the Greek word here is release, the exact same word that Jesus used here in, 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 in Luke 4.18, for the release, for the forgiveness of sin. 
Amen? So here Jesus is saying, I am here so that those who are being captives by the bondage of sin, by the consequences of their sin, they can finally, for the first time ever, have freedom. That's why I'm anointed for. Amen? But not only that, but also to proclaim recovery of sight to those who are blind. Obviously, Jesus healed a lot of physically blind people. Amen? But this is not, I believe, again, what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about, again, those who are spiritually blind, who cannot see the truth because they are incapable of seeing the truth. Amen? You guys see the, 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 the common thread here so far? All these groups that Jesus is reaching out to, they're all desperate. They're all hopeless. They're all just at the very bottom of everything. There's just no hope for them anymore. Yet that's the kind of people that Jesus said, I'm here for. Amen? He said, I'm here to preach a recovery of sight to those who are blind, who are incapable of seeing the light. Even if they want to, they don't have what it takes to see the light. Throughout, again, Luke, we see many times where the blindness is spiritual more than just physical. Luke 8:10. This is what Jesus of God of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables. Why? Because those seeing they may not see. Question. What do you call a person who doesn't see? Blind, thank you. So he's saying this: I even though I'm speaking to can't see though hearing they might not understand over and over again we see that thought that spiritual blindness when God is speaking to you and you cannot hear it because you are incapable of hearing it when I was at school when I was at Regent I um, <clears throat> I ran I met a, this guy I'm not sure if any of you guys will be familiar with El Azhar University it's this is the most prestigious Islamic school in the world, and it's in Cairo, Egypt. This is like, in Christianity, it will be parallel to Oxford and Cambridge and Princeton and uh, Duke. This is like the top of the top. There, is, there are thousands of people who come from all over the Muslim world to Cairo, Egypt, to learn at that school. And I think it's number one Muslim mission, missionary sending school in the world as well. And there was a guy there who uh, has his PhD from there, and he was uh, a professor at the Al-Azhar University of um, uh, Islamic history, Islamic um, history. He just teaches the life of Muhammad and the history of Islam. Now, if one thing, a lot of Muslims don't even, have not read the biography of Muhammad. They don't even know what he said. They don't know what he did. Um, it's not in the Quran, it's not in the Hadith, it's, it's, not, it's just you have to go way out of your way to read his story. It's not like Christianity, you have the story of Jesus in your Bible where you can read it. And a lot of Muslims don't even read it. They don't even know how Muhammad dealt with other people. But if you get to read it, there's a couple out there. Um, Muhammad was really an evil, wicked person. He was a bloodthirsty butcher. That's, that's who he was. And that guy, who's a professor of Islamic history, he has to, this is what he does, this is what he teaches. He teaches the life of Muhammad. And through his studies, not even, obviously, as a Muslim, growing up as a Muslim, he thinks that the Bible is corrupt, Christianity is just not truth, nothing in it is right. Just by studying the life of Muhammad within the boundaries of Islam and finding out how evil Muhammad was, 
and how much of a butcher, bloodthirsty person he was, he came to the conclusion that this can never be from God. This man can never be sent by God. God can never be a bloodthirsty God that way. And he ended up becoming an atheist. That's what Muslims do. If you're abandoning Islam, you end up being an atheist. Still, because Christianity is just, there is no way it can be right. If Islam is wrong, then you become an atheist. He ended up becoming an atheist and, um, for a year. And uh, he became very depressed. Very, very depressed. And then he went to a pharmacy in, in his neighborhood. And the pharmacist was a Christian Egyptian guy. And he knows him. They might be in the same neighborhood or whatever. And he saw that this guy was just so depressed. And he's like, what's with you? He's like, I'm just so depressed, man. I was just, I'm not sure how much he shared with him. But that pharmacist, Christian pharmacist, ended up giving him the Bible. And he said, just take this and read it. This is the first time he ever like hold the Bible in his hands. And he told me, he went home night and at night and he opened the Bible and the first thing he sees is Jesus Sermon on the Mount. And the first phrases he's reading is Jesus saying, Love your enemies, curse those who bless you. Imagine this is the exact same thing that he has been struggling with. How Muhammad was not even loving those who like good to him. He was deceptive and trickery and, and just, you know, selfish and all this stuff. And he told me that once I read that phrase, I just knew in my heart that this is God. And he said, I spend the whole night reading the Bible and by morning I have put it in my heart that I'm going to be a Christian. Amen? Because Jesus has come so he can preach recovery of sight to those who are blind. You guys are with me? But he was not just your regular blind, he was a desperate blind. Amen? And because he was so desperate, Jesus opened his eyes and today he's a minister of the gospel. Wow. Amen? His name is Mark Gabriel. Look him up. He has tons of good books about Islam and terrorism. This is like phenomenal what the Lord is doing in his life. Jesus has come to do what? To preach recovery of sight to those who are blind. But not only that, he has come to set the captives free. Now, the word captive here in Greek is different than the word prisoners that Jesus just used. The word captives here that he's using in number four is actually a Greek word to say those who are utterly crushed. Those who are ruined beyond repair. Those who are crushed to absolute fine powder, the bottom of everything. To those, Jesus said, I have come to set them free. Amen? Think about that. Jesus didn't come. He said it over and over. We're going to see that. That he did not come to call the righteous to repentance. But he has come to call who? Sinners. And not just the regular sinners. The most desperate of sinners. The most wicked of sinners. The most evil of sinners. Those that sin has had their ways in their lives so much so. That they have become the very bottom of everything. And they have lost every single hope that they can ever be made right. Amen. It's to those. It's to those that Jesus has come and said I have come so that those who are crushed may be set free once and for all. Amen? Amen. Number five, he has come to do what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that year of the Lord's favor, again, present in Isaiah 61, is a reference to the year of Jubilee. You guys remember that? We talked about this when we studied the shadows of Golgotha in the Old Testament. That's reference, the whole chapter of Leviticus 25, it talks about the year of Jubilee. The word Jubilee literally means 
a ram's horn. What happened in the year of Jubilee is this. God commanded the children of Israel that for six years they, they sow the land, they reap the land, they feed off the land. But on year number seven, they give the land a break. And God said on year number six, the produce that the land will make will be sufficient for year number six and year number seven. So you rest the land and everybody rests on year number seven. Now God said after seven sevens, after 49 years, that year number 50 is called a year of a jubilee. What happened is that on the day of atonement in year number 50, they will blow the trumpet, the, the ram's horn, they will blow it. And God said in that year, it's called a year of jubilee, it's a year of rest for everyone. And not only that, there is also some other rules around the year of Jubilee. God said, if somebody becomes so poor that you have to sell your land, you cannot sell your land permanently. You sell your land till the year of Jubilee. And once you hear the ram, the horn, the trumpet, then the land comes back to its original owner. You guys are with me? It's kind of like you lease the land, not really sell it. So, for example, if, if the year of Jubilee is 40 years away, then you can lease it for a whole lot more. If the year of Jubilee is only 10 years away, obviously you're gonna lease it for a whole lot less because there's only 10 years that you don't have to have your land at that time, amen? But not only the land, but but also you yourself, God said, if you become so poor, you go and sell yourself to somebody. He can own you, for the lack of a better word, as a master and you are his servant as a hire. Till the year of Jubilee, once the trumpet is sound, you are free. You guys are with me? So imagine that, imagine that. Imagine that you have become so desperate in the land of Israel at that time. So much so that you, you sold yourself as a hired servant to somebody, you and your wife and your kids. Now you have to be extremely desperate to do that, right? But you get to that point and you sell yourself and your family to somebody and he owns you, he's your master, he tells you what to do. And then every time, every day, he's being oppressive to you, he's not being kind to you, you say, man, I can't wait to hear that trumpet sound so I, my wife, and my kids can go free once and for all from that cruel master. You guys are with me? And when it comes to nine years away, he's like, man, I'm going to hold on nine more years and I'm going to be free. And then eight more years, I'm going to be free. Two more years and they're going to be free. And then the day of atonement and the year of Jubilee approaches so close and that guy would be so anxious in his heart of hearts to hear that sound of trumpet because he knows once that sound is heard he and his wife and his kids will be set free once and for all amen that's precisely what Jesus said I have come to do amen for those who are so oppressed because of sin can't wait for the moment when they are being set free these are the kind of people that I'm here for these are the kind of people that I come so I can inaugurate the year of Jubilee the year of freedom the year of the ram's horn to them amen, amen. the spirit of the Lord God is upon me said Jesus to do what Number one, let's say the five things that Jesus has said he will do. Number one, to preach, proclaim good news to those who are hopeless and helpless. To proclaim freedom to those who are captive to sin. Recovery of sight to those who are incapable of seeing. To set those who are crushed to find pieces free. To proclaim the acceptable year of jubilee of our God. Amen?
Again, what dominator between all these five groups of people? They're all desperate, right? Now listen to me very carefully. Jesus loves all sinners. Amen? Can we say that together? Jesus loves all sinners, but he saves only those who are desperate. Amen? If you think that there is power in you to make yourself right with God, then guess what? Good luck. Jesus is not going to do nothing to you. If you're not desperate enough to come to him and say, I am desperate. I need you to come and change me. Then he will never come and change you. It's just sad, but that's the bottom line. Amen? He's not going to force himself in you unless you desperately feel the burden of sin, the wages of sin, and the, how sin has crushed you to find pieces. Then you, 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 then, and you think there's some strength in you to make it out to God yourself. Then good luck to you. Jesus is not going to do anything to you. Amen? You still can come to church. You still can serve God. You do whatever you want to do, but you're never going to become a child of God till you get to the point and say, Jesus, I am desperate. There is nothing good in me. There is nothing I can bring to the table. Would you please come to my heart and change me? If you do that, then the living Christ, who has, an who has been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, will come into your heart and he will set you free once and for all. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's just close with Jesus' sermon here. That last phrase that Jesus said. Jesus rolled the scroll and he said, Today, this word has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen? What does the word today mean? Is it something that you can do next week? Next year? Today is when? Today is now. And that's what Jesus was telling his reader. I am anointed by the Spirit of God to set the captives free, to preach, uh, to, to set those who are crushed into freedom, to proclaim recovery of sight to those who are blind, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But all of this is available, not next year, not whenever you want. It's available right here, and it's available when? Now, the scripture day, not tomorrow, but today is a day of salvation. Today, if you hear your, His voice, do not harden your heart. You might have heard this so many times before, but I'm going to close with it. If you turn back with me to Isaiah 61, that passage that we have. Isaiah 61 verse 2, it says this, that the Spirit of the Lord God took, anointed me to do what? To proclaim the year of, of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, and then what? And the day of vengeance of our Lord. Did Jesus quote that part when he read Luke 4? No. Right? He stopped at the first part when he says, I am here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Amen? And then he said, today, if you want all these blessings that I have been talking about so far, it's available for you today. And the reason why it's today is because if you don't take advantage of it today, there is a day that is coming when it's not a day of grace, it's not a day of mercy, it's a day of vengeance of our Lord. And guess who going to come to execute that day of vengeance of the Lord? Jesus, the exact same Jesus who's today telling you, I can take you in, I can forgive all your sins, I can make you whole, I don't care how messed up you are, how ruined you are, I will take you in. That exact same Jesus, one day you're going to stand before him, but he's not going to be extending grace and mercy to you anymore. He's going to be extending the judgment and the wrath of God over your sins. Today, 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen? Are you desperate? That's the question. The question is not if Jesus can save you or not. The question is not if Jesus wants to forgive all the mess up you have done or not. That's never the question. Jesus took the most sinners of all and he took them in and he changed their lives. And he transformed them from the mess of sin to the glorious liberty of the children of God. But every single person that Jesus saved was desperate. Say, Jesus, I can't. I can't. There's nothing good in me. And because they got to that point, Jesus came and saved them. If you're at that point, if you're desperate, I have some good news for you. Amen? I have some very good news for you. The Savior is right here in our midst, and his name is Jesus. Amen? He can take you just as you are, and you can leave the very doors of that church today. A brand new person, enjoying the very freedom and rest and, and glorious liberty that God can give you. If you say, no, there is some good in me, I, I, I'm not that desperate, then guess what? It's just another day, and these exact same words that you're hearing today will be the reason of your judgment when you stand before him in the day of vengeance of our God. Amen? Can we close our eyes and pray?